have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 23. We are uh, nearing the conclusion of our study of 2 Samuel. Now, David dies in 2 Samuel 2, or, or 2 Kings 2, rather. But we are nearing the end of our study of 2 Samuel. And uh, I've, I have enjoyed it. It's been a real challenge for me uh, to read, read and study and preach parts of the Bible we often overlook. Think about it. When it comes to David, you knew that he did something good. He slayed Goliath. He did something bad with Uriah and Bathsheba. And a bunch of stuff happened in between there, and that's about it, right? He wrote a bunch of songs uh, that were on Casey Kasem's Top 40. But beyond that, you and I probably didn't know a whole lot about David. And we've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, and everything in between. Well, 2 Samuel 23, page 298 of your pew Bibles. And with that, if you'll stand with me out of reverence to God's Word. Now, I'm just going to let you know, we're going to read this. Stick with me, okay? I don't want you to be like, oh, no. If I had known we we're going to read some genealogy passage, I would have stayed home, right? Or watched it online, wink, wink. No, 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 stick with me, okay? Every word is given to us by inspiration of God for our instruction in his glory. 2 Samuel 23, starting verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joseph Basherbeth, a, a Tachimonite, he was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. Next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eleazar, son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary. His hand clung to the sword, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. The Lord worked a great victory. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim, the valley of giants. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. The three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out, on the, out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now, Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the thirty, and he yielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in the pit on a day when the snow had fallen. When he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man, the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three, and David set him over his bodyguard. Azahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. Shema of Herod. Elika of Herod. Helez, the Paltite. Ira, the son of Ikesh of Tekoa. Abiezar of Anathoth. Mebunai, the Hushathite. Zalman, the Ahathite. Maharai of 
Netophah, Helab, the son of Baana of Netophah, Ittai, the son of Ribai of Gibeah of the people of Benjamin, Beniah of Parathon, Hiddai of the brooks of Gaash, Abialban, the Arbathite, Asmaveth, they get harder as you go, of Bahurim, Eliab, the Sha'abanite, the sons of Jashan, Jonathan, Shama the Hararite, Ahim, the son of Sharar the Hararite, Eliphelet, the son of Ahashbai of Maaka, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gileanite, Hezro of Carmel, Paarai, the Arabite, Egil, the son of Nathan of Zobah, Bani, the Gadite, Zelik, the Ammonite, Naharai, the Beeroth, the armor-bearer Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gerob, the Ithrite, Uriah, the Hittite, 37 in all. Stick with me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask that you would, as always, open our entire being, that we would receive your word, believe in your word, be transformed by your word. This is your work. May I decrease that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I am exhausted. <laughs> right? Let me give you a little hint I learned in seminary is you pretend like you can pronounce the name. Everyone will think you can pronounce the name, and then we will move on with our lives, okay? I made it up as I went. A little bit of Hebrew does, does help. I want to share with you a, 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 a picture. If you were to go to the Frankfurt Cemetery, and, and there they have uh, a, a, a series of monuments in honor of slain uh, Kentucky veterans in various battles and wars. And right in the middle is the Kentucky Military Monument in the Frankfurt Cemetery. Only one of those names matters to me. It is right here, perhaps you've seen as you go to Frankfurt Cemetery looking for Daniel Boone, you see a giant stick in the air, this is it, right? And, and we were driving through there when we first moved to Frankfurt, and I saw that monument. I thought it would be neat to, to go through there, and, and we walked around, and lo and behold, I saw one name of all the names on there that stuck out to me. It is the name Captain Elijah Craig. Now, that name may not mean much to you, but it means a lot to me. Captain Elijah Craig's uncle, whom he was named after, was the Reverend Elijah Craig. In my office, I have the last will and testament of Reverend Elijah Craig. The Craig family, I am a descendant of. They were among the first Baptists to come to Kentucky and plant several of the churches that are still standing. Stamping Ground Baptist Church and Great Crossings, Elijah had pastored. South Elkhorn, his brother Lewis had pastored and many others. So when I saw that name, even though everyone else had, 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 had looked at it and didn't know who this person was, it meant something to me. As the monument tells us, our Captain Elijah Craig fought at the Battle of Thames campaign during the War of 1812. That battle was fought primarily against Native Americans. During the battle, he was mortally wounded in the shoulder. But upon getting wounded, his first act was to reload his pistol. That's a dude right there, right? That's a man who knows uh, some courage and how to fight. Well, no doubt that if, if, if you were to go to this monument, I trust many of us have, there are dozens upon dozens of names, virtually all of them, for some of us, all of them, they mean nothing to us. We don't know who they are. We don't know their stories. We don't know their background. We don't know really where they're from other than being from Kentucky. They are just names carved in stone. At the same time, we go to these monuments. We go to these statues. 
We pay homage. In fact, Friday, we celebrated all the veterans of our great United States. Why? Because we understand that that doing so preserves our history, celebrates who we are, and gives honor to those who deserve it. In many ways, what you have here is a list of of names that are difficult to pronounce, are much like these carved stones we have throughout our land. But you'll notice these names are grouped into two categories. The first, we see those who, have a, who are profiles in courage. Profiles in courage. We'll look at these uh, quickly. Here in verses 8 to 12, we meet what are described as the three. That is their name, the three. And you, you need to go to cemetery for this, but there are three names who made up the three. Did you know that? That's, I, I had to read that in the Hebrew to figure that out. But you'll find that what unites these three dudes, and this is the upper echelon of, of David's uh, mighty men of value, if, if you will. What unites them and the stories that are told of them is their great courage. We meet the chief of the three, verse 8, Joseph Bas Hibeth a Talchimanite. These names will be on the test at the end. You had better spell them right, okay? Because Microsoft Word has no idea what to do with these names in my notes. You'll notice in verse 8, he is described as slain 800 men at one time. That story mirrors, of course, Samson. We'll come across some other stories that mirror Samson. The second of the three is Eleazar, the son of Dodo. That's a name I can deal with, verses 9 and 10. He is most remembered for the day when he and David seemingly fought all alone against the Philistines. Everyone else had fled, but these two with great courage fought. So courageous was he that when his hand had become weary, it was as if his sword was, uh, in, in country terms, duct taped to his hand, right? It was wielded to his hand, and he was tired, but he was hacking and slinging. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't take the sword from his hand, like my ancestor cousin there who reloaded the pistol. And thanks to him and David, Israel was valiant. Or verses 11 to 12, the third of the three, Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite. It looks like again, uh, or it looks like here, the Philistines had attacked Israel in an effort to destroy their food supply. And in response, uh, David goes to fight. And in the battle, Eleazar, um, uh, or, I'm sorry, like Eleazar, Shammah courageously stood his ground with great courage, was able to push back the Philistines despite the rest of the military fleeing. Here we see a series of three men known and remembered for their courage. But you'll notice starting in verse 13, we get not just profiles in courage, we get profiles in loyalty. This obviously takes up the rest of the chapter, but, but what you'll see is we'll move from the three to the 30. Really, you'll have 37 names mentioned in the end, but they're described as the 30, and there's reasons for some of those numbers. And these men are broken down into four parts. The first ones are verses 13 to 17, and this is the story of the men who, 
who when David just casually stated, I'd like to have water from the well of Bethlehem, they risked their lives to go precisely that. Now the text tells us here that these events took at the cave of Adullam. Now we, we studied that story. You can read more about it in 1 Samuel 22. You remember when the Philistines attacked Bethlehem, David and his men are fleeing from Saul. Now they're fleeing from the Philistines. And so they're hiding in this cave all the while the Philistines are 12 miles away from them, taking over David's hometown. Here they are, destitute and weary. And David, from what we can tell, casually says, you know, I really wish I could have water from Bethlehem again. And that sort of request is one of not just weariness, he's thirsty, but also of a longing that, that his home has been taken from him. His family and his friends and his loved ones, the people he grew up with, the town he loves has been taken over by the enemy. Oh, how I wish, he says, he thinks to himself, for just a last drop of water from Bethlehem. So loyal are these three men. They, 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 they load up and they, they pack up and they say, let's, let's go get it, boys. Three rednecks from Owen County, no doubt, probably on the Grat side of the river, right? I mean, these are real rednecks, you know? And uh, I remember when after 9-11, we were having trouble catching Osama bin Laden. And all my buddies were like, oh, I, we can fix this. Get you a bunch of rednecks. You know, problem, uh, promise them a new dodge when they get the job done, and a job be done in a fortnight, right? All you need is a couple of rednecks to get the job done. Here's your, here's, your, here's your rednecks. They go, they risk their lives. They go into enemy camp 12 miles away. They get their plastic cup of water, sealed, I'm sure, and then they have to risk their lives to come out of the camp, return 12 miles back, and they say, here you go, shepherd boy, right? David's nobody. He's a nobody. He's not king. He's not a military general. He's got a band of Mary rednecks with him, and that's it. But so loyal are they to him that whatever he asks, they are willing to risk their lives for it. Now, this detail about David pouring it out to the Lord seems strange to modern ears, but it would have no doubt endeared him more to his men. What David is saying here is that it would not be right for me to indulge my flesh, to take advantage of someone's loyalty for my benefit. I must be as loyal to them as they are to me. So he pours it out to the Lord as a, as a thanksgiving offering. This has been given to me, and I'm thankful for these men and their abilities and their sacrifices, their loyalty. We meet Abishai in verses 18 to 19. He is a significant character in the life of David. He was David's nephew, so you know he's a troubled kid. He, Joab, and Asahel were brothers. Those names may sound familiar, those who've been trekking along with us. They are the sons of David's sister, Zeruiah. And for the most part, Abishai is a loyal warrior to David, right? Um, in fact, he is described here as the chief of the 30. He's described throughout the story of David as courageous. He too snuck in uh, with David, actually. You remember the story when David got tired of fleeing? And so he snuck into Saul's camp, put a spear to Saul's neck while he's sleeping. Saul wakes up, sees the spear, and he's like, what, right? And then he sneaks back out and he said, and he took something to Saul to prove that he did it, right? That was a bishai that went with him. That's a dude right there, right? That, that is a real man. Uh, he was competent. David had trusted him uh, with his forces to fight against the Syrians and the Ammonites. That's 2 Samuel 10. He was loyal. He, was, uh, one, he, was, uh, he led one-third of David's troops to fight against Absalom. Remember, so many people sided with Absalom, David's son, during the Civil War. Now, although he was an accomplished leader, and loyal to David, he was a bit of a thorn in David's side. Abishai loved a good fight. 
He loved to go to war. He loved to kill. He loved to, to fight the enemy. For example, he was eager to kill Saul in 1 Samuel 26. Remember, they snuck in the and David and, and Abishai's like, you know, that like like that uh that saber-toothed tiger from Ice Age. I want a maul, right? Come on, let's just, you know, let me have it, David. And David's like, hold up there, Turbo, okay? Hold up there. Uh he um uh, later he wanted to kill Abner for uh, in code revenge in 2 Samuel 3. He and Joab wanted to put Shimei, the heckler, to death. You remember the guy who, as David is fleeing Jerusalem from Absalom, right? There's that dude who's like, you deserve every bit of this, you terrible human being. And Abishai's like, let me at him, right? Just let me at him, right? I'll fix this right now, right? And David's, no, no, just calm down there. But all in all, he was deeply loyal to David. At time, he was loyal to the extremes, but what he wanted was for David to be protected and David to be loved and to lead. Benaiah, verses 20 to 23, is the son of Jehoiadai. He was the son of a valiant man, described as a doer of good deeds. In verse 20, you see a word, aerials, and some of your translations may be transliterated, um, but yours probably says sons of Ariel of Moab. It's a word we can't really translate it. It carries the idea of being lion-like, which makes sense because he's described as going down into a pit to fight a, a, a lion. How bored do you have to be to say, you know what? I ain't got nothing else to do. There's a lion in a pit and I want to go pet him, right? You know, actually what you have here is probably the word pit is describing a cistern, which means the lion has ended up in the cistern and ruining the water supply. You'll notice there it describes that snowy day he fought the, the, the lion. Let me give you some insight here. It don't snow very often in this part of the country, okay? Right? This ain't Kentucky in November where we will go from 98 degrees on Friday and 10 degrees on Saturday, right, with six feet of snow. And it, it's not like Kentucky, okay? So it was a memorable day because it snowed. Oh, yeah, something else happened that day. A dude wrestled a lion and came to, back to tell the story, right? I mean, that's... That's there, but he's very loyal, right? He later slayed an Egyptian. The story has some parallels with the Goliath there. The main thing is, is whatever need there was that David had, he was there to fight and to serve David. And then we get the rest of the story, verses 24 to 39. Uh, we're going to have the deacons at the end of the service to uh, pronounce all these names. I can't be the only one to try that. And for the most part, we, we don't really know a lot about these guys, most of these men are from Judah, which makes sense considering David was from the tribe of Judah. At least three are from the tribe of Benjamin, which is Saul's tribe, which is an interesting detail. Two come from Ephraim. One may be from Dan and another one from Gad. Three were Gentiles, which is interesting details. That's about all we know about these dudes. They are names on a page. Names that you and I can't really pronounce. And that's it. Now, compared to a genealogy, I think this is a great list, right? Because there's a lot of fighting and slaying and sword yielding and lion fighting and all that sort of stuff. And there's some entertaining stories in there. But that's it. It is a list of names that consisted of David's 30 and his three, his mighty men of valor. So what do we do with this? We can read the names, but, but what does that have to do with the price of bread in China, we could say? Can I make just a few points here before we dismiss? The first thing I notice here is that great men lead great men. Great men lead great men. This entire story of David has all been about David. His ups, his downs, 
and everything in between. The good decisions he made, the foolish decisions he made. Everything. When he was moral, when he was immoral, when he was in danger, and when he triumphed. It's all been about David. But what this list demonstrates is that the greatness of David is also tied and is as much a result of the greatness of the people around him. Let's be honest, that, that if you had men like this helping you lead, you could lead anything well. These are great men, and great men lead great men. And the traits of these men, courage and loyalty that are highlighted, are contagious traits. Just as cowardice can be contagious, particularly in an army, so can courage. David himself instilled courage in his men by being courageous. David instilled loyalty in his men by being loyal himself. So too, when we are called to lead, we are called to lead well. And when we lead well, we make Good men, great men. And those great men turn us as good men into great men. Great men lead great men. And what we are lacking as a society are great men. And what we need are great men around great men. What we need is great men to lead great men. And David is certainly, and these men are an example of that. The second thing we see here is that great men have great character. What I find most significant is, although the narrative wants you to see the cool stuff, fighting a lion and, and standing against the Philistines and, and going into the army to get a cup of water for, for your dude, that stuff is good. But it's the why do they do these things? And the why is explained not by orders given, but by character that they already have. David never said that unless you go get me water, you're out of the camp. Rather, he just said to himself, I'm thirsty, and men had the courage, men had the loyalty, they had the character to carry it out. If you want to be great, have great character. Which is why, when I believe the reason the, the narrator puts this passage here, because we're not looking at chronology of this part of 2 Samuels, we've emphasized, is so that we can compare these men and what made them great with David and what has made him great. What has made him terrible? When David failed, his influence waned and his men began to falter. Because great men have great character. And great men with great character bring along them men with great character. It is contagious. And we need more of it in our homes, in our churches, our communities, in our nation. Thirdly, great men, we said this last week, are men at best. The best of men, Alistair Bay likes to say, are men of best. Here we have a list of great men. And yet what is so striking about this is there's a name that we read together that jumped off the page and we have so far ignored, but we can't do that now, can we? Verse 39, what's the last name in, in, in that chapter? You know who it is. It's Uriah the Hittite. It's not an accident the writer put him last, is it? He didn't put him last because he was the least significant of the 30 men. He put him last so that the reader can remember that name. It jumps off the page. It leaps off there because you weren't looking for him. You weren't expecting him. He's been dead for what, since chapter 11? Yet there he is among the 30. Including his name makes the evil that David committed even greater, isn't it? No doubt David and Uriah knew each other well. 
And so you, you can see why Joab, when he gets the order, put Uriah in the front. Joab knew, oh, yeah, this will put Uriah's life at risk. But he also knew the story of the three, the stories of the 30. This is one of the great warriors we have. David's up to something good. No, David took one of his mighty men of valor and he executed him. Why? So that no one could find out what he did to his wife. That's a level of evil. No doubt this man has shared a meal with David. Uriah was loyal like everyone else in this list to the point of death. David, on the other man, proved to be disloyal to his men. Uriah gave David his life. All David did was to take his wife. Even the greatest of men are men at best. We can spend our lifetimes trying to wrap our heads around why David did what he did. But let it be suffice to say, the best of men are men at best. The tragedy of Uriah illustrates just how broken many of us are. I think I've shared this before, maybe it was on a Wednesday night, that when I think about my time in college, I lived in the dorm for two years, my undergrad studies at the, at the seminary. I think about how many of us, all of us were planning to go into ministry. How many of us that I know of are in ministry right now? I think there's about two of us. Some never started. Some have disqualified themselves. And some are busy doing something else. Because of stress. Because of burnout. Because they just didn't want to anymore. How tragic is that? What a reminder that even the best of us are flawed human beings. This church is made up of the same. Even at our best, we are still flawed human beings. The good news of this passage is God still uses the broken, like David, to do great things. One last thing. Great men are worthy of honor. We know virtually nothing of these people. Many of them don't show up anywhere else. And some of them, all we have are their names. We don't know who Helib, the son of Baana of Netophi. You can't pronounce it either. Leave me alone, right? We don't know anything about that cat. Just a name on a page. However, their inclusion tells us they were men of honor. They were men whose memory was worthy to be preserved. Around this country, let alone around this world, are monuments and statues of great men. This is good, and this is right. By honoring those worthy of honor, we are saying something of ourselves. We are saying something of our history. We are saying something of our God. What the text is saying is particularly men here seek to be as honorable as they. Seek to have the courage of them. Seek to have the loyalty of them. Seek to have the character of them. To honor them is to say something about ourselves, to say what it is that we seek to be. What are you and I doing right now that is worthy of remembrance? What are we doing right now that is worthy of preservation? It is unlikely that a statue or memorial will be given in our honor after our passing. But let our memory, let our legacy that we leave behind be a good one. One of faith. One of love, one of character. 
When I was reading through this list earlier this week, I, I realized that it mirrors other lists we find in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. Read Paul's letters and he'll, he'll say, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so. Most of those people, we have no idea who they are. But they mirror each other in many ways. Each name in Paul's letters represent a man of, or woman of faith whom Paul wants the church to honor. They are faithful warriors of Christ. That's one of the experiences I had in writing our history. The majority of the names, I had no idea who they were. I don't really know much about their story. They show up in minutes. They show up in newsletters. They show up in bulletins. They show up in memories. And what a reminder it is that each name, though ignorant of their story we might be, is a testimony of God's favor, God's grace, a testimony of faithfulness. What will be said of you and I? Will we have the courage of our convictions in an increasingly dark age? Will we die loyal to the gospel, no matter the challenges we face, no matter the cost it might require of us? Will we be worthy of honor? Will we be people of faith? If a similar list was to be made of this church or this community... Would our names be on it? And if so, why? I hope when people remember us, the thing they remember the most about us isn't that we slayed giants, but that we were faithful to the gospel. We were known for the gospel. And the love of Jesus was on our lips all the time. Let's go learn for Father, I ask that you would be Faithful to us as we seek to be faithful to you.